and it was just exhausting. Everything you did was exhausting. Going to the toilet was exhausting. And so you, you'd try and do it as little as often because you just didn't want to have to deal with <laughs> having to take all your layers of clothing off. You learn how to navigate the heads and when was the best time to go and how to Welcome to Unexpected Turns. I'm Anne Dibbon. And I'm Julie Tattersall. This is a show where we delve into the lives of people whose lives haven't quite gone to plan. Like the amazing Kimberly Skillet, who with absolutely zero sailing experience, signed up to do arguably the toughest sailing race in the world. Keep listening to find out why. Thank you very much, Kimberly, for inviting me to your lovely home with your dogs sleeping quietly on the floor here. Yes, let's long, long may they remain that way. <laughs> They're very calm. Thank you for inviting me. Because you've had a really unusual life. You've been here, there and everywhere. And now you're just down the road from me. I know. So if you could just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and... Yes, yes. So I'm 38 years old, uh, living down in nowadays in Dorset, near Poole, uh, which is a lovely part of the world. But actually, I grew up in Hong Kong. So I was born, born in Hong Kong at the Matilda Hospital on top of the peak. And uh, when my parents were living over there, my dad was a pilot. My parents had been there for 23 years. And I had a wonderful life growing up in Hong Kong. It was, it was everything that you could possibly imagine as a kid. Um, my dad was away quite a lot, but my mum was always around. And uh, she liked to ride her horses. And so I used to go to school and then no one would be there to pick me up. So I used to make my own way home and just run around. I was pretty feral, I would say. You could, you could probably say it. I was pretty feral. And uh, just walk up barefoot to my friends whenever I wanted. It was a wonderful, wonderful childhood. And we had very lucky in Hong Kong, actually, because everyone thinks of Hong Kong as high rise buildings and flats. But actually, we lived out on, on the mainland, closer towards China. So we lived in this, this big house that had a huge garden. And we weren't supposed to have such a huge garden, but we did. And this garden kind of had a big kind of amphitheatre shape at the back. And you could climb to the very top over the fence and up. And then you could look at the town the other side. And it was wonderful. And we used to, you know, make flying foxes in the woods or in the in the trees out there and all have boxes and kind of roll down the hills in boxes. It was a very idyllic childhood. It was wonderful. Wonderful. We did lots of travel. Obviously, Dad being a pilot, travelled all over the world and most exotic holidays. It was really wonderful. So we went to Australia. I always remember going to the Great Barrier Reef, going to Australia or places like Kota Kinabalu. And then obviously coming back to the UK as well to over Christmases and things. Because you had family here. Yes, yeah. My mum's family was all from here. My dad's from Guernsey and the Channel Islands. And then when I was nine, I uh, went to boarding school. I did choose to go to boarding school. My my mum and dad gave me the choice and they said, this is boarding school, would you like to go? And I didn't know what it was. And I thought, well, that sounds exciting. Gosh. So I went off to boarding school when I was nine years old and went to actually a place near Fairham in Hampshire. Oh, so you came to boarding school here yeah, in England? Yeah, in England. So mum and dad were still living in Hong Kong. Guy was at boarding school already, so I thought, well, why not? And um, so I came over when I was a nine-year-old and had absolutely no clue what it actually meant. So whereabouts in Fairham did you go? I went to a little place, a little village called in Wickham, and it was called oh, Rooksbury Park. And I always remember coming up this driveway to this very austere, it wasn't particularly old building, but it just had kind of like Roman columns out the front to make it look like it and it was this kind of dark greyish brown colour and it was just just a very austere looking building. I remember just coming up to this place going, 
Oh no, what have I done? Have I made the right decision? Yeah, have I made the right decision leaving all my friends in Hong Kong? But actually I had, it was fine. No problem at all. I do remember being dropped off and having all these young kids screaming and crying because they're going to miss their parents. And I looked at mum and I was like, should I be doing this as well? But actually, no, it was, it was no problem. There's only once, I think, in all my time at boarding school that I ever cried. And I think I just cried because everyone else was doing it. But actually, I was fine. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed being at boarding school. And I was a, I was a full-time boarder for a year and a half. And then mum and dad came back and moved over from Hong Kong to England. And, uh, and we lived there. And then I became a weekly boarder. So I just spent time there during the week. And then the weekends, I would come home. So yeah, no, but I had a wonderful time, wonderful childhood. But then that's when dad got diagnosed with Alzheimer's after that. So it was when he came back, took early retirement, and that's when they found. So you were 11 then? So I was 11, yeah, when they had, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It's very um, young. Yes, yeah, he had early onset dementia. And, and actually, he got it just before he was coming up to... He, well, about five years before he was due to retire and he was doing a rating exercise apparently and someone had just said it just he's just not quite right something's not quite right and uh, seems a bit more confused and not too sure what's going on as much as, as well as he should be he was only 55 then he was only 55 yeah 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 so they decided no no he wasn't 55 he was coming up to 50 was coming up to 50 and they retired that young yeah okay. yeah so i think they fit i think they retire at 55 they used to retire at 55 i think and he was coming up to 50 and anyway so mum spoke to the doctor and the doctor said no there's nothing nothing wrong with him whatsoever it's just you know getting older and mum thought oh no i don't think that's correct and so we took early retirement mum took a, they took early retirement moved back to england and it wasn't actually until they moved back to england that they went they took him to doctors the doctors didn't say anything he's actually a naturopath or yeah yeah. a natural um, remedies doctor that actually said he's got Alzheimer's and uh and so that's kind of how it started and I was I was 11 when that when he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and Guy yeah. would have been a couple of years older yes so Guy would have been 14 and uh, so that was a big kind of well I didn't really know what that meant is that you don't really know the implications until it really hit me as a 14 year old and I'd moved to a different school by this point uh, and I've gone to my secondary school in Winchester. And uh, I remember one day, Dad couldn't spell the word world. And that, for me, hit me a lot, because suddenly at 14-year-old, I was like, wow, my own dad can't even spell the word world. And it turns out that world is actually a very hard word yes, to spell, and it doesn't really sound the way it is spelled. And so they actually use that in memory clinics and tests. So that, for me, as a 14-year-old, really hit me in that, wow, this is actually very, very serious. And of course it was serious beforehand, but I just didn't really realise it. And how did you and your family cope with that? My mother is an incredible woman. <laughs> uh, she's very... Mum always just... It was always a kind of life-will-carry-on attitude. Very much a kind of, no matter what happens, we'll just carry on. I suppose kind of stiff upper English... <laughs> English upper lip, I suppose you could say. But we just, we were always very close as a family. We always had a lot of support from mum's family and also from dad's family in Guernsey. They'd come over a lot. And, and for the first few years, it was small things. Like I remember you used to pick up the phone and, or, or my dad had picked up the phone and someone would be giving him a telephone number. And he used to say, 
I'm sorry, I'm not very well. I'll give you to my daughter. And then I would take the telephone number. I'd take the phone and I would write down the telephone number and find out who it is. Uh, or think, you know, that's kind of how it started to progress from that. As I was getting a little bit older, it was a case of, I would be like, what do you want, dad? You know, he wanted something, but he couldn't tell you what he wanted. So he was like, do you want tea? Do you want coffee? Do you want water? And you'd go through and then finally when you got to whatever it is he wanted, he'd be like, yes. Like, right, okay. So well, I'll get you a beer or whatever it was. Yeah. We kind of start to go through. And so he knew he wanted something, but he just didn't know how to say it. And it was almost like a disconnect in his brain where it was just, he knew what he wanted to say. And he was almost like he was trying to verbalize it. But then just in between verbalizing it in the brain, it just never came out. So that, yeah, it, and it was quite, it's ironic really, is that my dad's favorite thing was to talk and to communicate. Mm. But actually that was the first thing to go when he had Alzheimer's. And that's why I think Alzheimer's is one of the cruelest diseases because actually it's almost like it knows yeah. what your, what means to you the most and kind of takes it away. That was what dad struggled with is communicating. So that was the first thing. And then, and then as, you got old, as you got older and it became more and more progressed, his ability to walk and things like that went as well. But it was his ability to communicate and write the first mm. to go. So, uh, yeah, I, I look back and I, I kind of think, do you know what, I don't think I've ever had, I ever had a conversation with my dad, like a proper conversation, as a kind of teenager, teenager or kind of finding out a little bit about his life or what he did. Because I went to boarding school when I was nine. And then, of course, I grew up and went, I was still at boarding school until I got to 16, by which point his ability to have a kind of conversation had gone by the time I was 16. You could ask him and, you know, questions or things, yeah. but not the ability to have a proper conversation. So I don't think I ever had a proper conversation with my dad, which is actually very, very sad. Very hard. Yes. But, you know, as you say, how do you get through it? My mum and family just... She was so resilient and just so strong and just carried on. So that's, and that's our mentality. I remember, I always remember as, as it got later and later, and I was probably in my late twenties and mum would be like, dad's really ill. And I'd always just say to her, it could always be worse, mum. People all over the world don't have what we have. So it could always be worse. She's like, very true. And then we'll carry on. So it's very kind of stiff up a lip. Let's just carry on with this. And that was always the way that we were. Whatever was happening, it was just, there are people in worse situations, so Guy and I would often say, get over it, mum. Wow. Got a bit brutal in some ways. But when the situation was just so awful at times, you couldn't dwell on it. You just have to say, you've got to get on with it. There's always that. And I always remember, and this is kind of goes to show you kind of how <laughs> kind of tough we could be on each other. I always remember when, when dad was dying and I messaged my brother and I was calling him and I said, you know, you need to come back. It's, it's really bad. Because he was in San Francisco He was in San then. Francisco by then. And, uh, and I said, you've got to come dad's dying and it's pretty awful at home and my brother just turned around to me and said well deal with it because I can't come home yet and it's just and I was like yeah you're right I, I just just deal with it so it's very just kind of and you just sometimes need someone to snap you out of it and that's always what I kind of feel our role is if mum was having a tough time then you just be there be positive and tell her to snap out of it because there's always someone's worth and that was kind of our our way that we got through it but mum was always very, mum never, dad was always at home. He did go to respite occasionally for a week, kind of to give mum a break. But then that ended 
But we would never stop our lives. And that was always mum's ethos. Dad is part of our life and he will be there. So we used to have parties at home when dad was there. Even when we had carers in the house, we never stopped. And when dad was living downstairs in the dining room, we'd have a curtain across it. But if I had friends over or was having a big party, dad would always be there. Even if mum, I kicked mum out of the house, <laughs> dad would always be there. And quite often would probably be a bit drunk, would open the curtains at midnight, go wake dad up have a little sing-song with dad and then close the curtains and, and go back out again. So he's always included as part of our family and life. So he, even when you know he couldn't move and he was lying on a bed, he was always part of our life. And I think that kind of helped with everything because it wasn't like dad's just sick, it's just this is the way it is and let's just carry on. And so that was, and, and sometimes some of the family said, oh, do you think it's appropriate for Kimberly to be having a party? But mum would always say, this is her home as well and dad is part of the family. And we'll just carry on. And so I think that made it easier Gosh. for everyone because mum was always just so kind of like, no, this is the way it is. And he's part of the family. And he's part of the family and life goes on. So, uh, so yeah, so that's, I think that's kind of how we got through it and, and how, although it was a horrendous, horrendous experience and, and dad was sick for a very, very long time from the age of when he got, di- well, from the age of about 11, uh, dad passed away. Uh, in 2015 so it's still Gosh, so it was a long amazing. time after still about 20 years after he was diagnosed with it which is very rare for alzheimer's because the average life expectancy was alzheimer's is i think it was about seven years yeah so but he just wanted to live he just long long time but it was very hard very hard time but it just it did it was a catalyst for kind of everything that i've done post that because a lot of my time beforehand i would come home so when i was living in london I would come home most weekends. When I was at university, I'd come home very, a lot. Um, I never moved abroad, actually, when my parents, when my dad was still alive, because I didn't want to leave mum. No. And I was, because Guy had gone, my brother had gone, was living, living all around the world. He was travelling a lot with his work. And so I kind of took on the role of, well, I will be there for mum's support. So I would go home most weekends, or a lot of the time, and spend a lot of my time at home. But it always meant, though, that when I had a holiday... I would go abroad because a holiday for me then wasn't coming home and being at home with my father who was very sick because I'd come home every weekend. So for me, a break was to go on holiday. So I have done some pretty fantastic holidays (laughs) and gone to some incredible places all around the world. And it's kind of fueled my what what has kind of driven me in my past few years to kind of do as much as I possibly can. And also my mum and my dad had a very adventurous life. So yes. it's my mum moved to um, Beirut when Gosh. she was 16 years old. Her father moved out there working for an engineering company. So she moved out there when she was 16 years old. Then she started working for Middle East Airlines. So at 16, she moved to Beirut. Yep. Lived over there and joined Middle East Airlines and was working for Middle East Airlines, I think having a wonderful time over she, there. What was she? She was um, an air hostess. She was an air yeah, hostess. Yeah, she was an air hostess, having a wonderful time partying with all the American military over there and having a great time. <laughs> and then she left just before the first Middle East War and then moved to, took a job with um, East African Airways as an air hostess living in Nairobi. And that's when she met dad living over there. So they had this wonderful life and you know, mum's travelled all over the world. So it was dad flying everywhere. And uh, so I know they've always had this adventurous side. And then they moved to Hong Kong, of course, when dad got a job with Cathay Pacific. So moved to Hong Kong. 
and then they had, a, they had a wonderful life and all the friends in this expat community. And I grew up with that expat community yeah. of dinner parties and just always having people around. And I absolutely loved it. I've always loved it. And I've always wanted to have live somewhere and have that expat community. It hasn't quite worked out yet. But having that adventurous side and spirit and always entertaining and having people over is very much what drives me now. And I, I entertain a lot and I have a lot of people to stay um, and so that's very much come from mum and dad as well. Does it make you sad seeing what's happening in Hong Kong now? It does. It, it, and I have the right to live and work in Hong Kong even now. I never, I got my, not a citizenship, but I've got the, my identity card. Yeah. So I can go and live and work over there. But it's just, it's just not the same. And it is very sad what is happening. But that was always the way that it was going to go. And I know they said they had 50 years, but they was never going to give them 50 years. So I mean, it's China. Uh, so it was always going to happen a lot quicker than that. But it is sad. I love Hong Kong. I go there. I love the buzz. And the kind when did of... you last go there? I went there. I was actually on a work trip that I went there probably about seven years ago. So it's been quite a long time, but I love the food. I love the, the smell, the buzz. Love it. <laughs> and, and food. Food, my dad was always known as Nosha because he loved his food. And I have definitely taken after my father in that sense. I love food. I love trying to find a street market that kind of sells all this stuff on the side of the road. And you go along and you pick what food you want. And wherever I am in the world, I will always eat street food. And that's very much from my dad. I love it. Love food. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's come from that. And, so, and the food in Hong Kong is wonderful. You said earlier that after what happened to your dad, that was a catalyst for everything you've done since. But you stayed at home yes. until your dad passed away yeah so what happened then so then I decided I'm working for someone that I wasn't particularly happy working for and then you know dad passed away and I just looked back and I just went there must be more to life than what I'm doing I'm miserable in my job I was still single looking for a man <laughs> and, and I just thought there is more there is more to what I'm doing than living in London commuting to and from work every day, coming back from work, being miserable, being very unfulfilled in what I'm doing. I just thought there's more, but I didn't know what. I didn't know, I knew I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what that was going to be. And it was making me more and more miserable in for a job that I already hated. And, you know, I just didn't know how to escape it. And then suddenly I was talking to a friend and, and I knew someone that had gone sailing and they'd actually met someone sailing. And I thought, well, you know, Maybe it's a good start. I might just, even if I don't meet a man, which was my, really why I was doing it. But I thought maybe I'll just meet some nice people, fun people who are at a similar stage in their life. A lot of my friends were getting married, talking about babies, and I was just not there in my life whatsoever. So I thought maybe I'll go do a day skipper course in Greece and have a holiday, drink beer in the sunshine and uh, go learn how to sail because I might meet some sailors and they might be some fun. So that was kind of what I thought. And I remember I was meeting a friend of mine after work and I was like, I think this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Greece on holiday. And I met my friend in Borough Market for a, for a glass of wine after work. And I was talking to him and I said, I think I might go do some sailing. You know, I'm just not very happy right now. And he said, well, don't do that. Why don't you do the clip around the world yacht race? And I went, what's that? And considering I live in London, it's actually interesting because there are posters everywhere throughout London of clipper but I just never noticed it because it wasn't on my radar at all. I'd gone past these posters for years and never noticed them on the tube. 
And I said to him, what's that? And he goes, oh, it's an around-the-world yacht race for, for amateurs. And I went, no, no, I don't sail. Well, I think I've been on a boat twice. I do not sail. And he goes, no, that's exactly, it's for people like you. And I was like, right, okay then. So I remember it literally that kind of, that instant, it sparked something in me. And I think it must have been a Thursday or a Friday. And I spent all evening researching when I got home about Clipper. And the more I read about it, the more I felt inspired and just like something changed in my mind. And I got home and I remember telling mum and I went, mum, I think I found something. She was like, right, okay. And this was probably about five months after dad had died. So dad had died just before Christmas. So this was probably about the May time, April, May time, something like that. And I said, I think I found something. She was like, what? She goes, uh, I said, I think I might take a part in a round the world yacht race. And she went, what? <laughs> As she would, yeah. And yeah, it was so out of the blue. And like I said, I'm, I'm, I didn't grow up in the water, even though I grew up in an island in Hong Kong. I didn't grow up in the water. I'm a land-based person, horses and, you know, fields, never, never water. And, uh, and she went, right, okay. And I just started telling her more about it and showing her some videos. And she said, do it. And I thought, God, my mum's telling me to do it. Then definitely, she was very, very supportive, which was actually quite interesting. I think she knew that I needed something to kind yeah. of get me out of my mindset. And uh, and I actually, also started Googling and looking at all these videos. And then I actually happened to find someone who I knew at work. He wasn't a close friend, but um, he was a colleague that I, I knew of. And I saw his video and he was on the Pacific of the 15-16 race. And I was like, oh my goodness me, I know this guy. So I literally messaged him the next day, got a meeting with him on Monday and chatted it through with him. And he said, absolutely do it. It's the best thing I ever did. So he'd done it as he'd well. He'd done it. He had done um, one leg across the Pacific. And he said, my only regret was that I didn't do two legs. And I thought, right. So I literally, after three days after hearing this race, I completed the application form and submitted it. <laughs> wow. And then I had an interview and they, they said, yes, go do your one week's training. And in my head, I was also thinking about, and I'd just come down to Paul. This was probably, this is now probably August time. So about three months after I signed the application, I'd done the interview to come down. And, uh, and I'd been down to Paul to see a friend of mine who lived down here. And I knew I wanted to move out of London. But I just didn't know where or what I was going to do. And I came down to see my friend down in Poole who just bought a house down here. And it was a beautiful, I think it was a bank holiday weekend in August. And it was stunning weather. And I came down and I went, huh. It's quite nice down here. Gosh. And there's, and then in my head, I thought, well, if I really like this sailing, maybe I could move, get more into professional sailing and become a professional sailor, in which case living down in pool would be great. Anyway, it turns out that professional sailing is definitely not <laughs> what I would want to do. No. But I came down here. So that then kind of changed my mindset again in that, actually, if I do this sailing, maybe I have somewhere that I could come and move back to afterwards. Uh-huh. So it kind of almost, it changed my mindset in that way. So suddenly I found this clipper, which gave me back something to focus on and something to kind of drive me again. And then I thought, well, I know I can come back down here to live, even though I'd never lived down here. I thought, well, that's a good place. So if it all, you know, afterwards, when I come back from doing this crazy adventure, then I have somewhere to move to. So that helped to change my mindset as well, is kind of having this positive I, I knew where I was going to yeah. be. Even if I'd never lived here, I thought I'm going to move down purpose, here. Yeah. I had purpose. And then I did the training and well, I thought that I was going to take to it like a duck to water and I did not. <laughs> I am not a natural sailor in any way, shape or form. Um, and even though I have spent a long time on a boat, I still barely know one end of the boat from another. <laughs> 
but I just really enjoyed being on the water, even though if na- sailing did not come naturally. It took me about a day to realise that I was never going to be a professional sailor, never wanted to be a professional sailor, and but I just wanted to do this for a challenge. So my mindset changed quite quickly in that definitely don't want to do this for a job, but I want this to be a challenge. So I, I did all the four weeks training, and then it was that was 2016, and it wasn't the race didn't begin until 2017. So I finished my last week of training in, I think it was April or May 2017. And I flew out to Cape Town in October 2017. So I packed up, I took a sabbatical from work. I took six months off work and I was going to quit work. um, But I actually started working with this incredible partner who was just so inspiring. And I got this job with her and I just got accepted onto the Clipper race um, after some training. And I was like, oh my goodness me, I've got a new job, still in the same company, but, you know, working for this new partner and I'm about to go and tell her I'm going to take six months off. I think I said, I'll probably have to take redundant or take leave and just quit. And actually she was so supportive. She goes, that's an incredible thing to do. And so I worked with her for 11 months and then I ended up taking a six month um, sabbatical. But she was so supportive and actually she was a, a very kind of a positive influence on me ever since I said I was going to do it. And having that support from work made me decide that I wasn't going to leave work. I actually thought if there is a partner like that who I want to work for and is so inspiring and, and more of a mentor, actually, then I thought, no, I'll kind of come back. So I came, decided to come back to EY, which was fantastic. Uh, and also, after you've done something like Clipper, you need to have something to go back to. Yeah. So actually, for me, that was, that was wonderful. It was like one thing after another, after having this very kind of dark period, to suddenly just... All things the things, were going right. things were going right and all slotting together. So yes, and I decided for this sailing, I decided if I was going to do a challenge, I might as well do a big challenge. So I decided to start my sailing adventure with the Southern Ocean and <laughs> then go to Australia, around Australia, and then finish up. I wanted to finish up in Asia because that's obviously where, you know, I was born in Asia, even though we weren't going to Hong Kong, but we were going to Northern China. And I thought that's a kind of a good, a good place for me to go. And the, the time worked out well. And and yeah, before I knew it, I packed my flat up in London, put my job on hold, and I was flying out to Cape Town. Gosh. Yeah. And I remember getting on the plane, and I waved goodbye to mum the, in the airport, and she, I think she was crying. <laughs> of course. And uh, got on the plane, and yeah, and that was it. And then, yeah, I just uh, got on a boat and started sailing towards Australia from Cape Town. <laughs> and so what was like that like? Because, I mean, Cape Town... It's really, yeah. really rough. It is. We were very lucky, actually. So when we got there, I had a, we had a, like, three or four days where we kind of prep the boat and you kind of meet all your crew and everything. And, and it's all very overwhelming and daunting. And you're a bit like, wow, you know, I can't believe I'm actually doing this. And you do a day sailing. And I hadn't been on a boat for, by this point, six months, maybe maybe five months. I hadn't even been on a boat for the last five months. And I was like, oh, my goodness me. I think I've forgotten all my training. And you do a training day and you thought, oh, wow, what have I done? And then suddenly race start happens and there's so much fanfare and music and, you know, there's so many people on the dock. And then suddenly you get on the boat and there's, I think there were 21 people we had on the boat all that time. And I remember my skipper had given me a job of manning one of the, uh, one of the winches. And I just thought, I don't know what I'm doing. Well, don't, don't give me this job. I, I can't do this. And anyway, I was doing that the whole time and it was amazing start to the race. We got out there and the wind was perfect. The weather was beautiful. It was probably about 30 degrees. Nice. nice bit of wind. It was beautiful. And the first few days was stunning. 
But we did know that there was the end of this storm that had come across the Southern Ocean. And it was, it was going to miss us, but we were going to get the tail end of it. And I remember looking at the map just before we started, and it was like this sea of black all the way across the Southern Ocean because the strength of the wind was so strong that it wasn't even dark red, it had gone to black. And everyone just saying, oh my goodness. And it basically just seemed to cover half the Southern Ocean. We're, like, we're going across there very shortly. But of course, that was three or four days. And by the time, three or four days later, we got there. It wasn't nearly yeah. as it had gone. But it was still probably 50 plus knots of wind in this situation. And it got colder and colder and colder. And we unfortunately, one of the boats had sunk. It, it had gone a little bit too close to land. Um, off Cape Town and had hit a reef and unfortunately they couldn't salvage the boat so that had been a write-off so there was already a lot of disruption to the start of the race um, from Cape Town but everybody's okay everyone was okay yeah they everyone managed to get off the boat and just walk across to the beach um, because it was so close to the beach but unfortunately the boat was a write-off because the beach was a nature reserve and they couldn't get any equipment to salvage the boat so unfortunately the boat was um, written off and that was the end of that and Everyone had to try and make their way from Cape Town across back to Australia and join other boats. So there's lots of kind of disruption that, that happened there. But I just remember we're in the lead by this point. So it's only, well, the, the boat that sunk, unfortunately, sunk on day one of that race. And so this was, so about two days later, I just remember thinking, wow, it's getting windier. And it was getting colder and colder, considering Cape Town was about 30 something degrees. And I just remember I was wearing all my clothing that I had, about eight layers of clothing, about two or three days in. And it was blowing an absolute storm. It was so cold and so wet. And I just remember thinking, good God, what have I done? <laughs> I paid all this money to take part in a race and I'm freezing and I'm wet. <laughs> and I thought, what am I doing? And of course, it was so hard for me to move around because I'm not a sailor and I didn't grow up in boats. And I had to crawl everywhere. So wherever I went, I had to crawl. And my knees were so sore because wherever I was going was crawling. And I did have knee pads, but they just didn't, they didn't work for having them on for six hours at a time. And, and so I just remember taking them off. My knees were red raw from crawling everywhere. And it was, I remember one night just thinking, we're freezing. It's, you know, you had four, at nighttime, you did four hours on and off just to kind of, make it more bearable and our, during the day we had six hours on and six hours off but at night a four hour stint was really long when all you had was waves crashing over you sometimes the waves were so strong they just wipe you off the side and you end up in the middle in the cockpit of the boat and you'd be like oh my goodness me what has just happened and I remember one night it was just freezing and we're all sitting at the top and no one's sitting particularly close because you're all you're all clipped on and and so if you do get washed off then you're you're attached to the boat and I just remember thinking, this is so cold. And my skipper came up and said, if you're really cold, everyone get into the, get into the companion, into the cockpit and huddle like penguins. Because that's the best way. And it's so rough. We're not changing sails or anything else. We're basically just sitting up there doing nothing. So I remember just huddling into the cockpit. There's about four or five of us. Like uh, penguins. Like penguins. And we just lay there. And it was the, the only thing that got, got me through that really cold time was just sitting there with everyone, with four or five people, as close as we possibly can. I never met before we did this race. I never met these people before. And then suddenly I'm trying to get as close and touching as much physical contact as you could possibly get to try and get some warmth. And everyone lay with their head facing towards the boat. 
so that when a wave came over, you didn't get seawater in your face. <laughs> yes. And I just remember at some points it was so rough and it was so bad that we're all lying like penguins, but such huge waves are coming over that the water would go over you, would hit the bottom of the boat and then come back and splash you in the face. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was pretty, those first parts were pretty grim. And actually it was such hard work. So the Southern Ocean is renowned for nice big rolling waves. And, you know, everyone's like, oh, it's incredible. You just kind of ride these waves and it's amazing. Well, we did not have that. We, ha- <laughs> we had 14 days of upwind sailing and the boat just slamming into the water. And it was such hard work. So you're heeled over between 30 to 40 degrees. And everything you do is just such an effort. And every day you're putting on eight layers or every time you get off watch, you're taking off eight layers of clothing. You're sleeping in as many layers it takes. I was sleeping in two layers of your thickest thermals that you can get in a really slip, thick sleeping bag with a socks on, really thick socks and a hot water bottle. And I was still cold on that boat. And then you get up and it's again, you're heeled over. The boat is slamming and you have to put your eight layers of clothing back on again to get back on to the on to the on watch and it was just exhausting everything you did was exhausting going to the toilet was exhausting and so you you'd try and do it as little as often because you just didn't want to have to deal with <laughs> having to take all your layers of clothing off uh to go to go to the heads as we called it yeah and uh yes i won't go into too much of the head stuff but it was you learn how to navigate the heads and when was the best time to go and how to flush the toilet as quickly as possible because the the toilet was not on a gimbal so a gimbal is where if depending on what boat the direct the direction the boat is the toilet goes the other way so it always tries to maintain flat being flat well our toilets were not on a gimbal so you if the boat was heeled over at 40 degrees you have to be very careful quick. and quick and flush like mad or for me also the other thing i only stupidly bought one toothbrush one toothbrush with me right. and all the toothbrushes were kept in the heads and within in a little pocket so I always remember having to cling on to my toothbrush for dear life because I thought if I drop this toothbrush into the floor of the heads where lots of mucky water is, I can't use my toothbrush and I'm on this boat for a month. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I always remember clinging on to my toothbrush for dear life. There's little things like that. that you kinda, and and I, you only cleaned it, I only cleaned my teeth once a day, but cleaning it once a day was the best thing ever, especially when, when it was really rough. When it was flat, you... You know, it was easy to go and clean your teeth. But when it was rough you just and cold, once a day was pretty much all I could manage. And uh, But you just, little things like that, I always remember. Just hold on to that toothbrush and clinging onto it for dear life. And thinking, what an idiot. Why didn't I bring two toothbrushes? <laughs> but I only ever brought one. And but you managed to keep it the whole time. I managed to keep it the whole time. And I still got my little toothbrush holder. But I have <laughs> it in my, in my drawer now. And little things and you kind of... You know, you're so used to having a shower every day and being clean every day. But when you're on a boat, we couldn't have a shower. So I didn't have a shower for an entire month when I was on the boat. But you just get you just get used to it. I mean, my hair was an absolute disgrace, but you just tie it up every day. And I always had a headband on to keep my hair from flowing around my face. But every day I tried to brush my hair once a day just so I didn't. Because people who didn't ended up getting huge mats in their hair. And I was like, nope. So kind of little things like that. And, you know, you're so used to putting on a clean pair of pants every day. Well, when it's really cold and you are putting on eight layers of clothing to get on deck, 
you do not bother to change your pants every day. So I used to change my pants on every Sunday. So once a week, it became my weekly treat. It's like, yay, it's clean pant day today. And you'd have the effort to try and get all your layers of thermals off. And you've got to do it in your bunk as well, in your sleeping bag. Try and do all of that. There's not much room, is there? No, no, very little room. And of course, you're with everyone else on your watch as well. So it's not like you can, you can go to the heads. But of course, if it's rough, then there's going to be water in the heads. And goodness knows what else has kind of come up from beneath. Uh, So you don't want to get changed in there. So basically, any way you get changed is in your bunk. And it's just real hard work. So you don't, and it's cold. But when you had new pant day, oh, did it feel amazing to have clean pants. <laughs> and so it's little things like that that you just kind of learn to cherish. But for me, the, the clipper race became just endurance, became a challenge just to kind of day-to-day survival. I wasn't going to, I was never going to be the greatest sailor. So for me, it wasn't about, I wanted to learn to sail, but it almost wasn't the environment. Our skipper was very, she wanted a race. She was there to race. She wasn't really there to teach us how to sail. She was there to race and she wanted to win. We did win the race, which was incredible. And she's the first female skipper to ever win around the world yacht race, which is amazing. And um, what was her name? Her name was Wendy Tuck, an Australian skipper. I've heard that, yes. Yeah. And and she was determined to win and she did win. We had a fantastic team and we did win. But her ethos was we gotta try and get there as quickly as we can because we need to win this. So I quickly kind of gave up on the idea of learning to sail. Um, I already knew it did not come naturally to me, so I wasn't going to do it professionally. So I quickly kind of gave up on trying to be the best sailor, which, right or wrongly, and it quickly became a thing of survival. Just, I always try to be positive and just maintain a good sense of humour. And that kind of became my thing. And it really is... You know, Clipper, a lot of people, a lot of sailing professionals think, oh, Clipper's, you know, stupid race. It's done by amateurs. It's, you know, they can't really sail. And I say, no, that may be fair enough. We may not be the best sailors. But do you know what? Half the professional sailors would never survive going around the world with a load of people they don't like or know and have the mental resilience to stay positive and not lose it. And I think that's what I always proud my, was proud about myself was having the mental strength to do it. And to never lose my sense of humour or I was always positive, as positive as I could be in certain situations. But just, yeah, just kind of being strong enough to get through it. And that's what I was really pleased with myself that I managed to do that, even when times were really rough. And don't get me wrong, I did cry a couple of times. One of my, the funniest one looking back was when, must have been about, in the, it was in the Southern Ocean, my first leg. And... It was so cold and wet and I was so fed up because every day you're not putting on dry fowlies. Every day it's wet. Mm. And so after 14, 15 days when it's freezing cold, freezing, and you're just putting on damp clothes over your dry clothes, which you're sleeping with. I used to sleep with your clothes, so at least they'd be warm when you put them on and they weren't damp. And then you put on your fowlies, which are waterproof, but of course they get damp and they get cold inside. And I remember just coming down for, I'd just woken up and I was about to go on watch for six hours and I was in all my eight layers of clothing, absolutely freezing cold, eating breakfast and I just saw this water running down and I sat in it and I just remember eating my porridge with a tear running down my face going, I don't want to get wet, I don't want to get wet, I'm so cold. <laughs> no one saw me, I didn't cry out in front of anyone but God, I thought, what am I doing? But that was my only time I had a weakness. And then I got up on deck and it was absolutely fine. And you kind of, you get up and get on with it. 
But that was my one time on the entire race, actually, that I thought, what am I doing? And that was it. Gosh. How about the other people? Did they all cope or...? Yes. Yeah, no, it was a fan... We had a fantastic team. And to this day, I'm really close with my crew from Sanya Serenity Coast, which was the name of the boat that we're on. And they have become just amazing friends. The people that I met on Clipper have changed my life. And I... Some of my closest friends now, I still have all my really close friends from before Clipper and friends for me are really, really important. Mm. But also my Clipper friends came at a time in my life when a lot of my close, my other close friends were getting married and having babies and I just wasn't there. I still wanted to go out and have fun and I was single and I wanted to have those drinks and just let my hair down and really enjoy life. And a lot of my other friends were in a very different place. And of course you go and you do Clipper and you meet people all very similar, similar mentality, wanting to achieve and do something with the same mindset, no matter how old they were. I think the youngest people in our race was, I think, was 18, and I think the oldest was 72. Wow. But everyone there had a similar mindset. So you're with like-minded people, and our crew was fantastic. And, and, and I have a really good friend who moved down to Poole, and she was on the race on a different boat, and I didn't actually know her that well during the race. But we've become the closest friends ever since. And I have other friends as well uh, who live in London. Who, and she comes down a lot. And so all these people that have I never knew beforehand and now are such an important part of my life. The best thing about Clipper, for me, and what many people say, is the people that you meet. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that it's very expensive to do Clipper, don't regret one penny of it through the people that I have met and how it has changed my life through doing that one activity and no matter how expensive it was it was worth every single penny and the most more people that I speak to a lot of people that I speak to say exactly the same thing mm. exactly there, there were some people that didn't like it there was, there was one person who signed up to do all three legs that I had done and after the first leg he got off <laughs> and he did come back and he was really nice but he just says no this isn't for me I would never have dreamt of getting off never I it just kind of fueled me all these people these fun amazing times and of course it's dry boat so you don't drink of course when you're on the boat because that would be highly dangerous Uh, but that does not mean that you don't daydream about it the closer you get to the end of the race (laughs) and you think oh what's my what do I really fancy because you're eating boat food all the time meat doesn't last very long and you get fed up of beans and onions because that's pretty much the only thing that does survive and you just end up daydreaming of what am I going to eat and it's always feel for me you steak, an amazing steak, a cold beer. Even if you're freezing cold, you just think, I want to get off. I'm going to have a free, I'm going to have a cold beer when I get off this boat. <laughs> and so you, about a week towards the end of the race, you start daydreaming about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink when you get off the boat. Um, and when we got to Australia, actually, it had been a lot longer. The race was supposed to be 21 days. And because of the very unusual weather conditions that we had, it was 27 days that we we're on the boat for. And we got into Fremantle in the middle of the night and my mum had come over to Fremantle to see me, and it was oh. absolutely wonderful. And they gave the Im- as the immigration people came on, and they took your passports, checked everything that we hadn't stowed anything away. And then once they left and gave your passport back, the race staff would come on, and they they gave us this huge basket of fruit and beer. So basically, <laughs> and the the basket of fruit were like hyenas had just got ripped apart, and we we're all just stuffing our faces with fresh fruit because we hadn't had any fresh fruit for weeks and weeks so eating grapes and apples and oh you name it it was delicious and then just necking back beer oh it was wonderful and then you go off and 
it was the middle of the night, it was three o'clock in the morning, everyone's exhausted, I hadn't had a shower for a week, but oh my goodness me, just getting onto dry land. So just get, it made you appreciate so many, so many smaller things that you just don't appreciate in everyday life. Clean knickers, fruit, <laughs> and a cold beer <laughs> became very appreciated items after a while. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. It's a funny thing what you what you became important to. And it made you reassess your life. Definitely. Clipper had given me back the the fire that I had completely lost after dad was so ill for such a long time. And the job that I didn't enjoy when I signed up for Clipper. And it just kind of and I just thought, no, it's given me this kind of lust for life. And I thought, right, I'm going to go and do many other challenges in life afterwards. And it kind of just, and, you know, and someone was talking to me on the boat, and he's an Italian guy, his name was Emmy, and he just said, so what's your next adventure? And I thought, God, I haven't even thought about that. And, uh, and he goes, well, you ride horses. And he was like, what about the Mongol Derby? And I thought, what's that? And again, so I looked into that when I got to dry land and I thought, yeah, I'm going to do that. That's my next challenge. I haven't done it yet, but I would like to. I'm coming up to 40 in the next few years. And I thought that's going to be what I want to do in my early 40s to do the Mongol Derby, which is the longest horse race in the world um, yeah. out in Mongolia. And you, you ride through the Mongolian steppes. So it just it just gave me my desire to travel and be adventurous. And I had lost that through all my time kind of coming home. I'd been on some wonderful holidays, but. I had lost that adventurous spirit. Yeah. And the Clipper race gave that back to me. And my mum and my dad, especially my dad, had been so adventurous. He travelled down through the Nile. He'd done all these amazing things. And I wanted my life to be like that. And it hadn't been like that. I'd taken on a different responsibility to kind of be there for my mum and support her when she was doing this. But actually, I had lost that spirit and it gave it back to me. And when I finished the Clipper race, I decided to get a tattoo. And it was, it was one night, actually, this came about, and I've never had a tattoo before. I knew my mother hated them, <laughs> despite the fact that I was in my mid-30s by this point. I knew my mother hated them, and I'd get told off. <laughs> so I'd never thought about having one done. But it was coming up to Sydney. It was a beautiful evening. It wasn't cold. I'd had a light jacket on, and we're out about two days out of Sydney, and I was up with my really good friend called Joe, And we were just sitting up looking at the stars, and it was a meteor shower happening. And it was the most spectacular thing I've seen. So there's meteor showers going on in the sky above. And then you look down in the water and there's bioluminescence in the water. So as you're traveling through the water, this sp these sparkles come up underneath the water. And as the, the boat was just nicely cruising through, as the ripples in the water, it activates the bioluminescence. So it's basically the water is shimmering and glowing in the dark. And then you have these beautiful stars, shooting stars above you Gosh. and it was just it was actually the day the anniversary of my dad's death dad's death and it would have been two years and I just thought dad's looking down on me he's definitely looking down on me and it was so beautiful I'll always I will never ever forget that moment and I was with my good friend Joe, and I was just saying I, you know I need to, I want to capture this and, and anyway suddenly somehow we thought he wanted to get a tattoo he was like why don't you get a tattoo and I was like don't be ridiculous I don't need a tattoo and he goes yeah do it and I thought oh and that was the night that I had these, the stars, the sh shimmering water, anniversary of my dad's death. And I thought, I'm going to get a tattoo. And anyway, I finished the race and I told them I'm going to get a tattoo. And I designed this tattoo, uh, which, I, which I have and I got it. And it's of a world and it focuses on Africa. 
which is where mum and dad met and where my dad had all his adventures in Africa. And then around it, I have swallows because a very old sailing tattoo is to have swallows. So back in the day, if you had one, you got one swallow for every 5,000 miles. And if you had one swallow as a sailor back in the day, you know, it was your experience. Then if you had two swallows, then goodness me, you'd done 10,000 miles, you managed to survive. Three swallows was like, you know, unheard of back in the Navy in that day, hundreds of years ago. So anyway, I decided to get some swallows and I'd just done over 15,000 miles. So I got three swallows and and then I got um, a little circle to go around it and I got a caterpillar. So my dad was a member of the Caterpillar Club, which was created after the Second World War. And if you ever um, ejected from a fighter plane, then you became a member of the Caterpillar Club for the strings, the silk strings that hold the parachutes. So he was a member of the Caterpillar Club, so he has this little gold caterpillar. So I decided to have this tattoo, and I designed this tattoo of the world with the swallows flying around the outside of the world, and at the bottom, a caterpillar, to remind me of Dad. And it all, I have this tattoo, uh, you can't see it unless um, it's, on, it's on my, my rib cage. and I have this tattoo to remind myself to live an adventurous life like my dad did, and that I've done it before, I did the sailing, the swallows remind me of that, um, to always, always seek something adventurous and to live an adventurous life. And if I'm not, I can look in the mirror, look at that, and it always just spurs me on to do something amazing with my life. Because I've never wanted a boring life. I want to have an amazing life. And that tattoo just reminds me that I've done it before. Dad lived an adventurous life and mum was with him as well, that I can do it and that's what I want to do. So it's to live an adventurous life. And I have this permanently tattooed on my body <laughs> to remind me. What so, an yeah. ambition to have. Yes. And I, so after, after I did Clipper, the people that I met have been fantastic. I moved down to Pool and um, bought a place down in Pool. Um, have my dogs down here, met an incredible man who's a sailor. <laughs> so even though I didn't want to become a professional sailor, he is a professional sailor. Um, and he's the most kind-hearted, loving person who I never would have met had I not done Clipper, had I not done sailing, because I never would have been in that world to have met someone who was a professional sailor. But you didn't meet him on Clipper? No, no, he's, a, he's not an offshore sailor. He likes to sail, race, and then go to the pub in the evening and have a shower. <laughs> So no, I didn't meet him on Clipper, but it was through sailing have, with pe- Clipper people, with friends. with friends and Clipper that I met him. And, and through COVID actually, um, the horrible time that was COVID, it was my friends who I've created a bubble with that got me through COVID as well. Um, and we became very close. And so, yeah, and so it's, you know, something I did, I did Clipper to learn how to sail and see if I want to do it as a career. I didn't want, I was a terrible sailor. And I didn't want to do it as a profession. Yet, the thing I didn't think I would get out of Clipper was the people. The one thing that was slightly disappointing with Clipper is that I thought I'd go and meet the man of my dreams. Well, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I met some incredible men, but I didn't meet the man of my dreams. So, but I met him later. I'm different different type of sailing. Different type of sailing. So, yeah. So, it, Clipper changed my life and my outlook on life. And, yeah, it's just made me so much more positive. And the people that I meet are so positive. And it's just inspired me to go do many more adventures. I don't want a nine to five life. I never have done. And I kind of forgot about that for a little while, looking after my dad. But it's just kind of ignited me to go and continue being adventurous. There are so many amazing places in this world. And to do it sustainably, so you're not destroying the planet at the same time as doing it, but to do it in a way that you can go get to see different cultures, see the lives and the worlds of different people. and to do it in a way that doesn't harm the environment 
but yet you're still getting to experience the best of what the world has to offer. But sustainability is a big thing with you, isn't it? It is, it's it is. It's part of your job now, isn't it? It is, it's part of my job. I wanted to do sustainability um, for probably 15, 16 years. It's just taken me a long time, but now I'm um, in my company now, um, helping to build our sustainability practice. And it's fantastic. It's so interesting. The people that we're meeting, the types of topics that we're covered, it's so broad. It's not just environmental, but the social impacts as well. And it's an incredible topic and it really does just, it's just interesting. It's a really interesting topic to be involved in. And I'm really proud of myself for kind of finding it eventually. It took me a while, but I found it eventually and just really happy that I'm in a situation that's really exciting and it's changing so much. And are you still working with the same partner that you were when you left for Clipper? I'm, I'm not, unfortunately. It's, that's it's a real shame. But I um, have jumped around for a few different roles and I kind of come back. But no, and the partner that I worked for also moved on and is doing a different role now. So, it, But it was it's something she will definitely be someone that will have a big impact on the way that I think of work and the way I think of a good leader. Because I think she was a fantastic, inspiring leader. And there are very few people like that out there. And I think that she definitely kind of helped change my mindset in a time when I was really vulnerable and low. And she was so positive and promoted me to other people saying, look what amazing thing that I've done. And she always says that I inspired her. But actually, it was totally the other way around. She really inspired me in kind of the type of leader that I want to be. But I still work for a great partner in what I'm doing and I'm just very very lucky and very grateful and I work for a good company it gives me the opportunity to kind of still think of adventurous things that I want to do in the future and hopefully they'll give me some more time off <laughs> we'll see have you got any other future plans or are you just taking life one adventure at a time I think I'm just taking life one adventure at a time I suppose you know I came back from Clipper and I want to do something straight away afterwards but also, unfortunately, you have to work to do these adventures because they are not free. Or well, I haven't found a way to make them free, that, that's for sure. But now I'm just getting to my point, I'm like, right, I think I'm ready to start looking. So I've got my 40th birthday coming up in a couple of years' time, and I think the Mongol Derby will be my next one. And then after that, I would like to, I would love to go to South America. I've never been, Costa Rica, and maybe go around um, slightly further down Patagonia, maybe ride um, in Patagonia, Chile. Argentina go down there but I that's kind of I think the Mongol Derby's next and then I'll focus on probably South America I'd love to go to Alaska yes that would be an incredible place to go to and spend a couple of months there but I'm not sure what my next adventure would be because that that sounds more like a holiday in my head but I need to I need another adventure uh but I'm just not quite sure what that is yet and hopefully at some point I'll have a family and then that'll be a different adventure Definitely. and then hopefully I can bring the sproglets along with me but that's probably unrealistic but yeah so it kind of my adventures have changed a little bit as I've got older and kind of what I want um my partner and I have talked about maybe in in the next 10 years we'll buy a boat and we'll sail around the world together with children hopefully we'll see how that works out but so we could do it together and kind of have that experience wow. together so that's what we would like to work towards that'll be a 10-year goal so I think we'll do the Mongol Derby first Maybe a few bit of adventures in South America and Alaska first. And then within that time frame, 10 years, start to think about sailing around the world together. Because I'd love to do that. Kind of take some time off from work, from sitting in front of a laptop every day, to really getting out there and just 
I love being on the water. It, my my mind just stops yes. thinking the way it does kind of when you're in your day-to-day life. Oh, lovely. So that's, that's future. That's exciting. You seem to be very content. Would you say that you are? Yes. Very content. And very, I'm very privileged with, I have a, we have a wonderful family with, I'm very close to my mum, to my brother, the extended family that we have as well. And I have a, a job which I enjoy doing. I have friends that I'm incredibly close with and I have an amazing support network. So I'm very, very lucky in that I am content and that I always wanted, you always want more, 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 more. But I'm at the stage right now that actually, yes, I'd love to have more adventures, but they're not, the, it's not, they're not impossible to get to. They're not out of reach. I just, I've got other things right now that I'm kind of focusing on, but they're there and I know that I can do them. I just have to plan them. So I'm very content at a time where for many, many years, it was incredibly hard. And even though I was, you know, life carries on and it was still always there. My dad's illness was such a big part of our life for 20 years. And it dictated a lot of my life because I didn't move abroad when I wanted to move abroad and have an expat life that I always wanted to have. But I didn't because I wanted to be at home and support my mum. But now I'm kind of, I'm very content with where I, what I've got where I've been, the life I've had, and it's up to me now to do the adventures that I want to do. It's not up to anyone else, it's up to me. I have to do them. And I just have to find the time and the money <laughs> to do them. So yeah, but I'm excited. I'm very happy. I'm a, I'm a very lucky person. Wow. It's a lovely note to end on that you are very content. That's mm. been fascinating talking mm. to you. I've loved it. Good. Thank you to Kimberly. It's been fascinating and quite inspirational to hear how she's gone on to actually do something that people only dream about. Yes, as many of our guests say, don't just think about it, actually go out and do it. I always remember the phrase that Chris Reeves used, be your own hero. Next time, we talk to the incredible Skip Sams, who's faced more than a few battles. Written off in his early 20s, he's gone on to achieve great success and has quite an astounding story to tell. So once again, thank you to you, our listeners, and we look forward to you joining us next time.